0: Transition into Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week, and I was thinking this past uh, couple of weeks about how I taught this exact same Sunday a year ago, and I think it was my guess is about the third gathering that we had where it was all virtual, and so I was just I was preaching to a camera, to to one of those back there. Hi, those of you who are worshiping online, Um, and. And the world was in a really precarious place. And um, I, I remember this, this mixture of sorrow that I felt that we could not gather as a church family, especially as we were heading into Holy Week, into Easter. But at the same time, I, I remember this sense of anticipation and this wonder of, God, what are you going to do? The world is turned upside down, and I just, I just knew the character of God, the work of God, the example in Scripture, right, that when things get turned upside down and we're forced to be dependent upon God, some amazing things happen. And so I was both sad and really excited, and I remember sharing at the beginning of that teaching that I was feeling just the, the awesome weight of getting to lead, help lead God's people in the midst of this crazy new world of COVID-19. And what I want to do today is basically just share the exact same message that I shared a year ago. And here's why. Number one, there is no way that any of you remember what I said a year ago, okay? It's one of the great tragedies and insecurities of being a teacher of God's word. There's no way. And I'm going to say it's not because the quality of the teaching was subpar or bad. I'm going to go with it was COVID. Blame everything on COVID, right? Our world was spinning. I don't expect you to remember what I said a year ago, let alone a week ago. And it's not its not just because you probably forgot. It's not just because I felt lazy this week and I didn't want to put in the work. It's because as I went back and I looked at my notes from last year, what I was sensing God wanting to do in that season, I'm sensing him still wanting to do in the life of this church. I remember leading with the phrase, I want us today to just sit and to marvel at Jesus. I want us on this Palm Sunday just to, to, to get him, to see him for who he is, to be surprised by him all over again, to love him again, to adore him freshly. You know, the end of a year makes us reflect, right? That's what happens at New Year's Eve. We get all sentimental and reflective and sad and happy and excited. And, you know, we're celebrating about a year since our world turned upside down. And I wonder if your understanding of uh, your walk with, your knowledge, your relationship with Jesus has changed this past year. We said at the beginning of COVID-19, we said that there is no way that we are going to come out of this thing the same. There's no way that as a church or even individually that that we're going to go through this massive upheaval And have to rely on God in new ways and endure sorrows and losses and pains and annoyances and difficulties. There's no way that if we walk with Jesus through that, that we could possibly be the same at the end of it. And so as we inch closer and closer to the end, I wonder, how has your relationship with Jesus changed? We said that there would be gifts and treasures to be found here. That that there would be things that would have the power to wake us up and to transform us. And where all of that transformation starts, where all spiritual formation happens, where all maturity and growth in our walk with the Lord happens, is in our experiencing Jesus. It's in our experience taking the knowledge of him and connecting it to our own lives in a relationship with him. That's where it happens. The scriptures tell us that when we see him, we shall be made like him. That's talking about the resurrection. That's what we're all looking forward to. The day that we see him, we will be made glorious like him as we were intended to be. But here's the reality. It can't happen in full right now, right? We still have these sin-saturated bodies. We're still broken and flawed. Resurrection has not come. But yet, in a very real way, it breaks in even now. When we see him, when we experience him, It changes us. It transforms us. So what we do on Palm Sunday is we reflect on Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem near the very end of his ministry. It's a story that's so important that all four gospel authors include it in their accounts. Today we're going to use mostly Luke to guide us. It's his entry into Jerusalem that launches this whole string of events that make up Holy Week. It's Good Friday, it's Holy Saturday, it's Easter Sunday. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, is called by scholars his triumphal entry. In going into the city, he is declaring not only that he is king over God's historic people, but that he is king over the entire world, the entire cosmos. And here's the thing I want us to see. How he enters reveals who he is. How he enters that city tells us something profound about who he is. Decisively profound about the very nature of our God and his kingdom. Before we dive into Luke, let me lay a really quick foundation. Okay, Jerusalem is not an ordinary place for God's people. It is the place. It's the place where the temple is. It's the place where the prophet said that the Messiah would do his work of rescuing and vindicating and redeeming. But at this time, and for a long time before, it's a place that seems forsaken by God. Jerusalem is under Roman authority. God's people yet again, and you see this all throughout the scriptures, God's people yet again are without the freedom that their ancestors promised. And Rome was very skilled at getting people to submit to them. No one dared question Rome, the emperor of Rome, was regarded as a god. There was no freedom. There was no individual rights. There was no due process. God's people, the Jewish people, were tolerated to the extent that they were submissive to Rome. The temple, that sacred place where God dwelt with his people, where heaven and earth meet, God's earthly home, their temple was not theirs. It was run by puppets of Rome. Their city, God's precious city that's talked about all throughout the Old Testament, was not theirs. Their lives were not theirs. Everything belonged to Rome. And so when Jesus makes his turn to go into the city of Jerusalem, his followers would have had one thought. Finally, finally, God is going to overthrow these Romans and we will be free and we will be powerful and all the world will see that our God is the God. Our king is the one true king. God will triumph. The deliverance that the prophets talked about, it's going to happen. It's been talked about for literally centuries. Generations have lived and died hanging on the promise that God would come back and redeem his people. Can you imagine the excitement and the anticipation of God's people? And so with that backdrop, let's go to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28. It says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Verse 32, Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. What a really strange request, right? Go get a donkey. Hey, guys, I'm going to need you to go get a donkey. It's it's really strange, but what's even stranger is that they didn't actually ask him. These disciples, these guys who constantly, right, are doubting Jesus, are not understanding, and missing the mark, and missing the point, they don't question him, even though they think that some massive political overthrow is about to happen they get that terribly wrong, they don't say anything about the donkey, about the colt. I'd expect them to say, Jesus, you're about to go set up your eternal everlasting kingdom and you want us to get what? Can you say that again? Help me understand that. But they don't. They just do it. You see, they knew exactly what was happening They knew what the prophet Zechariah had said about the Messiah long before. Check this out. Zechariah 9, verse 9 in the second half of 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Here it is. Lowly in riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, he will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. you see this? You see the the tension? See the paradox that's happening right here in this passage, in this prophecy from Zechariah long ago? Lowly and riding on a donkey, his rule will extend to the ends of the earth. Lowly and riding on a donkey, the ends of the earth. Right? It's staggering, the paradox, the tension in this. This is not a spontaneous change of plans by God. He's not calling an audible. This is exactly what God intended to do. Let's keep reading verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices For all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Other gospel writers tell us, John uh, in particular, tells us that they laid palm branches down, hence Palm Sunday. And the people are quoting, they're singing, they're chanting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a rare moment in the Gospels, where people are actually worshiping Jesus. It's a rare moment. They know what's happening. They know what's about to go down. They're singing, they're shouting for a king on a donkey. But not everyone approves of this, right? This is so common in the Gospels. Not everyone approves of it. Look what happens next. Verses 39 and 40. Some of the Pharisees, who were like the religious leaders of the day, in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The religious leaders are appalled. They're like, Jesus, you got to stop this. You cannot let this happen. These poor people think that you are claiming to be the Messiah and that you're going to usher in God's kingdom right now. You have to stop them. And Jesus says, No. If they don't do it, the mountains will cry out. You see, the Pharisees, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. They rejected the way that he was declaring it. The Messiah, they thought he should come in sweeping power with the full authority, the full power of God, the power that spoke everything into existence should be in this person. He should come on a warhorse with an entourage, with weapons, with a strong voice and a strong arm. The power of God should just ooze out of this man. This guy's on a donkey, and they don't approve. And Jesus says, You know what? The creation, when he says the stones will cry out, what he's saying is that the creation knows who I am. The one, the, the things that I created. Know who I am. They remember who made them. And he who made it can cause it to speak. It's an amazing show of his power. The voiceless stones, mountains being given voice at his command. You see, there is power in Jesus, there is authority in Jesus. It's enormous, it's unimaginable, and yet it's not what they wanted. It's not how they imagined it going down. There's a purpose in the way that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. It speaks something about his very nature, who he is in the core of his being. First thing of three things I want us to see, our God stoops. He stoops low to be with us. It is what he does. I don't want us to miss this. It is what he does. If I could use the word strategy, it is sort of God's strategy, right? First Corinthians 1 tells us that God takes what is foolish. He loves to take what's weak. He loves to take what is not, and then he uses it to shame what is. He uses it to shame the strong, the proud, the mighty. He loves to use the stuff that we would laugh at, like a little group of people, Called the Israelites, all throughout the Old Testament, to declare his excellencies. And there's a whole sermon or ten in why God does that and how God does that. The big idea is that he does it because it's an even more impressive display of his power. That he could do it in a way that would be far more like easy, so to speak, but yet he chooses to accomplish his purposes through what seems foolish and lowly. So, yes. It is what he does, but more importantly, it's who he is. Let me say that again. It is what he does, but more importantly, it's who he is. He comes to us in a way that makes it possible for us to know him. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not unconcerned with our lives. He steps right into the midst of the brokenness and the pain and the sadness and the exhaustion of our lives, and he meets us there. Why? Because he is humble. Because our God stoops low to be with us. He approaches us, you and me, just like he approached Jerusalem with humility and gentleness. Think of the ways that Jesus did this all throughout his ministry. The way he interacted with the woman caught in adultery. The way that he touched a leper who had probably not been touched in decades. The way he interacted with, the way he was compassionate with the blind and the lame, even the rich, and the privilege Jesus is always humble. And years ago, uh, Charles Spurgeon pointed out the fact that in only one place in all the Gospels does Jesus describe to us his own heart. Do you know that? It's only in one place. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here it is, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Dane Ortland wrote this amazing little book very recently called Gentle and Lowly, and I would recommend that you read it. It makes for a great devotional book, short little chapters. And here's what he says at the very beginning as he's kind of laying out this gentle and lowly nature of Jesus. He says, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. When Jesus tells us what animates him most deeply, what is most true of him, when he exposes the innermost recesses of his being, what we find there is gentle and lowly. Do you know God this way? Is God harsh? In your understanding of him, is he mean? Is he waiting to pounce on you? Is he waiting to punish you? If he is, you're not understanding the God of the scriptures. Our God is gentle and kind and merciful. And I know that it's hard to understand that he's staggering in power. Go read read Revelation and the image of Jesus in the end. Right? And so he speaks and it's like thunder and there's fire in his eyes and it's kind of crazy and a little bit scary. And he's staggering in power and yet at the same time he's humble and lowly and makes himself weak. And we struggle to make sense of that in our mind and I don't know if we're supposed to make sense of it. I think what we're supposed to do is just marvel that our God is like that. That he is so good. So much better than what we can even imagine. Let's go next part of the story. I got to move quickly. Here are the next two points. Verse 41 of Luke 19. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And so we don't have time to get into it today, but Jesus goes on to prophesy the, the destruction of the temple, which would happen not too long after that. And I, I want to focus more on what's happening than what he's saying here. So he's standing on this mount and he's looking over the city. He can see the houses and the roadways. He can see the temple. And what is he doing? He's weeping. He's crying. Second thing I want us to see is that our God weeps. Our God weeps. He weeps over the lostness, the brokenness, the the evil that dominates the lives of those people. And like he did when he looked over the dead body of his friend Lazarus, he cries. The God who numbers the stars in the heavens, numbers the hairs on your head, who formed everything out of nothing with his voice, weeps over his city. Of all the things, as I think back on this last year, that we have clung to in this pandemic, right? God's sovereignty, his ability to work good, Take what is bad and evil and turn it for good. His being Lord over both life and death. All that stuff that we've clung to. I don't know if there's anything that comes close to the power of this. That our God is not far off. He's not removed. He's not distant. He's right in the midst of the mess of our pain and our losses and our frustration. And he's weeping with us. I think one of the things that he's wanted to do in this church, in the, the church... This past year is to teach us to lament, to just sit with him, to unite our hearts with him in righteous and raw sorrow. And something happens when we do that. There is a deep intimacy with God to be found there. Have you done that? Have you run around this past year just trying to medicate, just trying to get through? Have you sat with the pain and the struggle and found Jesus there? That will change you last part, and I got to go, go quick. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, listen, there's, there's like five sermons probably in this passage right here. Jesus is angry for the way that the religious leaders are oppressing the poor. Okay, so they're making it really hard for certain people to worship. So to worship, you need to make sacrifice. To make sacrifice, you need animals. To get an animal, you got to have money. But they're doing it in a way that's making it hard for the poor and the marginalized to actually worship. And Jesus is angry. I mean, he is mad. The Gospel of John tells us that as he's talking to these people, he's literally making a whip. And he's about to go use it on them. Okay? Third thing I want us to see is that, yes, our God stoops. Yes, he weeps, but our God does battle. He does battle for us. He will ultimately give his life in that battle. He battles evil and oppression. And while what's happening here is specific to that reality, that culture, and he's mad about that specific thing that's happening, we also know that it's true when we zoom out and look at all of Scripture that God fights for us. fights for you right now, there are things in your life that are oppressing you. There is evil that you've allowed to entertain, that you've allowed to take root in your heart, and he wants to drive it out. He wants to take that which enslaves us, that we think will bring us life, but actually it just leads us to death and slavery. He wants to cast it out and drive it out, and I think Part of what God has been doing, I'm convinced, this past year, is he's purifying his church. He's purifying us, right? As we draw close to him, as we align our hearts with him, as we weep with him, he reveals our idols. He reveals the things in us that he needs to drive out, right? And because he's gentle, because he does it with kindness and tenderness, He brings us to a place of surrender. Has that happened in your life? I pray that it has, that you've laid before him those things that you're chasing after that can't give you life. So as I close, I just want to say two things quickly. Number one, all of our hope, for those of us who call Jesus Lord, all of our hope hangs on his character. Everything hangs on him being gentle and lowly. Okay, what we remember this week, what the church across the globe has remembered for literally millennia, it does not happen if Jesus is not gentle and lowly. There is no cross. There is no sacrifice for sin. There is no way for you and I to be made new. The guilt that's on us stays on us, and we are eternally separated from God if he is not gentle and lowly but he is. Praise be to God that he is. Do you see him? Will we worship and give ourselves to him in response? Second thing, who he is, is who we are called to be, right? So who he is, is who we are called to be. And I think about this world. Our world is hurting. Our neighbors, our friends, our family members bear the wounds of a really, really hard year. What if we went to them gentle and lowly? What if we, we went to them not pompous, not self-righteous, not arrogant, not shaming, but we went to them humble, possessing this hidden power, the power that Jesus had when he went to Jerusalem, a surprising power, a power that he gives us, but not wielding that power to shame or to divide or to mock, but being lowly and humble in that power to a world that's reeling and confused and without eternal hope. What would happen if we did that? What could happen just in your sphere of influence if we did what is the essence of our worship, which is to imitate our king, and to be like him for the sake of this world. That's what I pray as we head into this holy week. Would you bow your heads and pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we come, and it sounds like not nearly enough, but we just say thank you that Jesus left heaven, that the eternal one who has no beginning and no end descended and came to us lowly, not just because you wanted it to look that way, God, but because it's who you are. God, would we experience you as you come to us, gentle, lowly, offering us life, life abundant. For those who are here who have never before put their faith in you, who have believed for years maybe that you are harsh, that you are angry, that you cannot wait to punish them. God, would they come to you and surrender their lives to you? For those of us who have forgotten that you are that way, God, draw us to yourself. Would we encounter you? And would it change us that we might be more like you for the sake of our world? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.